Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are talking about a novella called Sand Kings by George R.R. R. Martin. This story was originally published in 1979. Because this is a novella, we'll be doing this in our classic two-episode format, and this episode <laughs> will be the recap. Yeah, classic two-episode format. <laughs> That's what we do here. <laughs> I'm really excited about this story. This one was nominated by one of our listeners, and this listener won this nomination by participating in the social media contest that we ran. Well, I guess it was last year. It had to have been last year, given that this is the first episode of, the, of this year. And in that contest, we had asked listeners to help us out in spreading the word about the shows that we do, this show and the other shows that we do on the network, to do that by you know, posting on Twitter and Facebook, by telling people about us in book groups, real in-person book groups, but also book groups on Facebook and Reddit. Edit and so on, and also just by sharing and retweeting our, our own posts on social media. And a lot of you participated, and that was so helpful. We really reached a lot more potential listeners that way. And so we're very grateful to everyone who participated in that contest. And hey, at least a few hundred of you who are listening to this episode got here because of that effort, got here because of other listeners doing that. So Welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you joining us on this uh, really weird <laughs> book club journey that we've got going on here. And we've also gotten to do some really cool stuff from the prizes that we gave away. This story is awesome. I'm real excited to talk about it. And then after these two episodes, we're going to be doing The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, which was the result of the other nominating prize that we gave out. And the grand prize of the contest was a free episode commission, a free bonus episode. The winner used that to have us do an episode, not on this show, actually, but on the other show that we do, or that I do, I suppose, called ATAS, though Brandon joined me as a, a guest host over there. This was an episode that we did on the Ian Tregulous novel, Bitter Seeds, which was, uh, you know, Nazi X-Men versus British sorcerers or wizards or something. It was a, a totally crazy book and a lot of fun. So anyway, again, really just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who participated. The results all around have been awesome and we appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm also really excited to talk about Sand Kings. This is a, a, as near a perfect a story as I think you can get uh, in terms of plotting. And, and, you know, I'll bring that up a lot in our, <laughs> in our conversation about this story. Yeah, Martin excels at plotting and, oh man, this story just works so well and, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to to recap uh, because the it's so tightly con, constructed in terms of a plot and then our discussion. Well, that might be a little more freeform because the story's so good, <laughs> but uh, we'll have a lot to say there too. So, thank you for recommending this story for us to read. I'm so excited to talk about it. So, Glenn, why don't we just get right into it? Yeah, the first thing that we need to say about this story right up front is that it's in space. This story is set in Martin's Thousand Worlds universe, where the stories take place outside of our solar system at various points in our future. Some of them are actually only a, a few centuries from now. Most of them are longer than that, you know, like a, a millennia or two from now. And the Thousand Worlds business in the name of that setting refers to the fact that humans have now settled on a thousand worlds, uh, though there are also alien civilizations. We might get a little bit of a taste of that in this story. And so this story takes place on the planet Balder. 
But the feature of the planet that really matters for this story is simply that it has space for a wealthy person to live in a sprawling manor house among dry, rocky hills with absolutely no neighbors. And this person is Simon Cress. Simon Cress loves exotic pets. He's got a carrion hawk. He's got a shambler. He's even got a fish tank full of real, genuine piranha from Earth. And these pets are presently posing a bit of a problem because he has to go away on business and he doesn't have any neighbors who can come feed them. But it's only a bit of a problem, though, because the hawk feeds itself anyway. And the shambler can, even if it does like to get nicer food directly from Cress. The real problem is the piranha. Eh, but if they get really hungry, they'll just eat each other and there will be probably a few survivors. He's done this before and actually found it amusing. So that is... My summary of the opening paragraph of this story, Brandon, and I have to say, I think that this is a masterpiece of a character introduction. Uh, it is. It amused him. I mean, this line tells us all we need to know about Cress, and it's the, the line that caps off the first paragraph. And at first, Cress seems like just a, you know, a rich dude who likes exotic pets and Something really important is calling him away from his home, and he's worried about his pets. But then we get this line about the piranhas eating one another, and we learn that Cress is amused by this, and it totally reframes our understanding of the character. Cress doesn't care about his animals or these creatures that he's taken on as his responsibility. They're just his playthings. And uh, yeah, we'll see if that's going to cause any trouble for him later on in this story. One of the things going on here, you know, not necessarily in this first paragraph, but as the story continues, one of the things that Martin does is not actually really talk to us about this shambler that is introduced in this first paragraph, but it's fairly clear that the shambler is pretty close to humanoid or something like that, and maybe even kind of near sentience, and wow, Cress is going to mistreat that thing. Yeah, the Shambler has important plot stuff to do, which we'll talk about, but it's it's really a background creature in the story, more so than anything else. Well, of course, things are not all right when Cress gets back from his business trip. The, the, the Shambler is, in fact, fine, uh, though only because it climbed up into the belfry and ate the carrion hawk. And the Piranha, they're all dead. There are no survivors, not even a lone survivor, just all dead. And Cress is vexed by this. But he also wants new pets, and so he flies his skimmer, you know, space car, I guess, to the far-off capital city, where there are a number of shops that sell exotic pets. Except there actually aren't any more. Xeno Pets has closed, Tetherain, the pet seller, just wants to sell Cress another carrion bird, and even Strange Waters only has pets that Cress has already owned, and he wants something truly new, truly exotic this time. But it turns out that, in fact, he is in luck after all, because as he is wandering around feeling despondent, he comes across a shop he's never seen before. It's Woe and Shade, Importers, Artifacts, Art, Life Forms, and Miscellany. The Woe in the Woe and Shade here, uh, Woe is here at the store. She's the only one because they don't use employees, and Shade never deals with customers. And there will be more on that in the third act. The first animal that Woe tries to sell Crest does not impress him. Uh, in fact, he mocks her about this animal. But she gets him with a question. Have you ever owned an animal that worshipped you? 
And she doesn't mean adore. She means worship in the most literal sense. And now she introduces Crest to the Sand Kings. And hey, Sand Kings, that's the name of the story. So (laughs) here we are. And these are small creatures that look to Crest to be insects, though Woe insists that they definitely are not. They are much more complex and much more intelligent. But they do live in a glass tank in an environment of stone and sand. Uh, At least that's what they do as pets. The Sand Kings share hive minds. Uh, They essentially are like ants or bees in that there is one central organism that gives birth to workers. But in this case, the central organism actively controls these workers through a shared consciousness. And in this instance, there are four hive minds in the tank, each one buried in the sand with a kind of castle constructed over it. And the workers that correspond to each of these castles are uh, a a different color. All right, but now we got to talk about this worship business. Each of these castles has an image of Woe's face on it. It's an image created by the Sand Kings because, well, they worship her because she's the source of their food. And finally, the last selling point for Cress is that the Sand Kings fight wars against each other over resources. That's fairly understandable, fairly expected, but also for more complicated reasons, just like people do. And one last thing to know, these Sand Kings are small and insect-like, but that's just because the tank that they're in here in the shop is small. They will actually grow to suit the size of their environment. And hey, that's awesome for Crest because uh, he's got this big piranha tank that's twice the size and, well, it's empty. Right. I'm going to actually pause and talk about the place names here for a second. Right. So we've got like a series of names that are dealing with North, Norse mythology here. And then like, you know, so there's Baldur and then the Forgotten Coast has also used that name for their Baldur's Gate series of games. <laughs> yeah. So I have to mention that because those games are great. And then Cress flies into Asgard, the main city, and he walks around on the Rainbow Boulevard. And this is just awesome. I love these place names. And I just want to take a moment to highlight that. I think uh, Martin has kind of nailed it again with the kind of place name as uh, world building technique that we've seen in, you know, Robert E. Howard stories and things like that. But I'm also going to pause here to talk about Woe and Shade. So we know that Crest wants some new pets to replace the old ones that he's neglected. And what really attracts Crest to Woe and Shade is the way that their storefront is designed. It's very mysterious and like fog is coming up in the windows and it changes colors and coalesces into shapes and letters. And there's this real ethereal quality to it. It's like a curiosity shop that has exactly what you're looking for, but then that object is cursed or something. And boy, will we be talking about cursed object curiosity shops in our discussion? (laughs) (laughs) And then we meet Jala Woe, who says that they don't take on any sales help, but then goes on to say that they have stores all over other worlds. So I'm already wondering, like, how does this work? Uh, And this is a bit of maybe destabilizing information that we have about this store. This whole store feels off and a little strange. Like, it's also bigger on the inside than on the outside. And the ceiling is a starscape. And everything is really nicely laid out. And the starscape isn't like, you know, the glow in the dark stars you can put on the ceiling of a kid's room. It looks super <laughs> real. You know, so I just, I get the feeling that, you know, maybe there's only one Woe and Shade store and Cress has teleported here through some sort of portal-like teleportation device. And Listen, I don't know about teleportation in the thousand worlds, but the point I'm trying to make here is that there is a really 
strong sense of like crossing a threshold here into something new. It's a kind of trope that that Martin is using here and it's used so well. The description of this this curiosity shop is amazing and I had not thought about this idea that maybe yeah, there's there's really only one of these shops, but they've got storefronts on lots of planets that have this kind of teleportation device. I suspect that's not literally what's happening, but it really very much does feel like that. I mean, it certainly doesn't make a whole lot of sense that she says we don't employ shopkeepers uh, and I'm here because this is a new shop that we just open. So like what's happening with the other the other shops right. on other planets? That doesn't really that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But maybe she just means we don't use shopkeepers in new shops. But at any rate, like the store is literally it's, it's bigger on the inside, you know, like the TARDIS. Like it, it has these properties that really are suggestive that that it somehow is violating the laws of of physics. It's it's magical. It's supernatural in some way. Right. And that's really important. We're really going to be digging into this type of thing, particularly the idea of the curiosity shop in our discussion, because, um, you know, it's a core idea of this story. But let's also talk about the Sand Kings as well. And really the idea that uh, of worship that's brought up here. The life forms, the Sand Kings basically learn to worship a person because a projection of their owner's head is projected into the tank at like a certain point in the development of the creature's society. Uh, And honestly, this seems like a pretty awesome thing to own, especially if this worship is really built around uh, provision, right? The giving of food. And these creatures will literally eat anything, like like literally anything. I I don't want to overemphasize that, but it's foreshadowing here. So (laughs) you can just feed them what you have around. Jalawo suggests, you know, table scraps sound great. Um, and anyway, it's also really good to know that these creatures will just grow to the size of their habitat. And, and man, I just hope that none of these creatures gets out during the course of this story. I'm sure everything <laughs> is going to be fine. And we already know that Cress is really responsible with his pets. So this is just maybe going to be kind of a boring story about a guy who feeds his pets, you know? I suppose I would read a version of that story. <laughs> but uh, alas, that is not what's going to happen here. But uh, that's that's some second and third act stuff there. And we're, we're not quite there yet. But it is time now. We're going to jump ahead just a little bit here. I mean, the story jumps ahead. We're not skipping anything. But it is time now to take delivery. And this scene is basically a list of things that are, are going to come back later. As, as Brandon has already more or less started to give us, in fact. First, although... Woe is there at Cress's house to supervise the installation. The The work of installing the Sand Kings is done not by humans at all. It's done by bipedal aliens of a species that Cress has never seen before. They're squat. They've got four arms. And then there's the lid to the tank. It's new. And they've also installed a feeder mechanism so that Cress can feed the Sand Kings without opening the tank because you definitely do not want one of the workers getting out. So we're doubling down here on the foreshadowing about what's (laughs) going to happen here. And another thing is the climate. You need to keep it dry, but not too dry. And finally, you have to be patient. Woe tells Crest to wait a month before turning on the projection of his face and to also give the Sand Kings time to grow and develop their castles and populations on their own. And also, hey, yeah, give them plenty of food. 
We also get a physical description of the Sand King Maw, which is to, to say the sort of queen type of, of Sand King here. And this just looks like a piece of meat with uh, a, a mouth. And I, I think Martin here means specifically like, you know, a piece of red meat. Like it looks like a steak with a mouth. Now, at this point, we're going to get a, a montage as the Sand King colonies develop. The Whites are the first to emerge, and this is really just one lone mobile who shows up on the, the fifth day. The, the, the mobiles here, uh, meaning the workers, I think mobile is probably the term I'll use for the, the rest of the story here. But the next day, there are dozens of mobiles from three colors, white, red, and black, with orange being the color that hasn't appeared yet, though they do eventually on the eighth day. So, you know, two or three days behind the others. A crest watches them all build their castles, and this is pretty cool. But what he really wants is not castles. What he really wants is for them to fight. And since they aren't doing that on their own, he decides to help them along by starving them. Now, on the second day without food, four black mobiles capture an orange mobile and drag it back to their maw. And within an hour of that, an army of more than 40 orange mobiles marches across the sand and attacks the black castle. But they're all slaughtered. And at this point, Crest goes back to feeding them, and a three-party war breaks out over the food, and the Orange Sand King just can't participate, and so it goes hungry, and you know it can't participate because it lost its army in this other battle. And now the Sand Kings are just warring all the time, and so this starvation move has been, well, it's been a huge success. It's a great idea. Yeah, Crest is a real <laughs> great guy. Uh, Woe's warning about being patient really can't be stressed enough here. I mean, I f it feels like she gives Crest the warning because she can tell he's not a good person. But then I wonder if it's really responsible to sell <laughs> Sand Kings to Crest <laughs> in the first place. And, you know, again, this warning about the Sand Kings not getting out to the environment from Woe seems like an important reminder to Crest in particular about the, you know, situation that the habitat that he's that he's got these creatures in because these creatures can live anywhere they're really resilient and they're omnivorous we also see that crest doesn't actually like the orange sand kings right off the bat because they are slower to develop and in the world of fast-paced business that crest lives in i guess that's as good as a death sentence and so what we see here is we learn about Cress and his characterization through the way that he feels about the development of different factions of Sand Kings. Like, like he's probably a much bigger fan of the Targaryen Sand Kings than of the Sand Kings from the North, you know, if you know what I mean here. But, you know, not only were the White Sand Kings the first to develop, they also won the battle for food. So these are Cress's type of Sand Kings. The Whites are his favorite. Yeah, Chris is the, that guy who uh, I don't know, lives in Philly or L.A., but is a Yankees fan because he you know, only likes winners. <laughs> he never roots for the underdog. That's just not an impulse that he has. And that is on full display here. I, I guess probably I should have made that joke about Manchester United for our international <laughs> audience. But point is, he only roots for, for teams that are already winning. And uh, yeah, that's a character flaw. That's it's definitely a character flaw. Well, all right. So now that the Sand Kings have been going for a little while, Cress turns on the holographic projection of his face. And pretty soon the Sand Kings are making art. They're depicting his face on their castles. And these depictions are, are quite good, except for the oranges, because, you know, they have fared poorly in the, the wars. They've And so they've only created a, a rather sloppy and goofy depiction of Cress. 
Cress wants to show off his Sand Kings, and in fact, this seems to be a pretty big part of his interest in exotic pets, is that he wants to show them to people. And so he invites some friends over for dinner, and then afterward, he takes them to the tank where he gets the Sand Kings to fight. Of course, right? He's done this by not feeding them for two days so that they'll fight over the food that he gives them now. So, you know, they'll fight on command, essentially. Now, there are two guests that we should mention. First is Kath. Kath is an ex-girlfriend, and she used to live here in this house with Cress, but her soppy sentimentality almost drove him mad. And so he ended the relationship. And really, he invited her here so that she would be outraged at this sci-fi dog fighting that he's putting on. And she is, as he predicted, and she storms out. She makes a pretty dramatic scene of it. Now, the second guest that we need to talk about is Jala Wo. This is the person who sold Cress the Sand Kings. Now, he invited her and Shade, but Wo explains that eh, Shade doesn't do parties. But Wo is here, and she lingers after the other guests have all left because she wants to inquire about the orange Sand Kings. She also knows, right, she can tell that Cress is not feeding the Sand Kings enough, and she mildly chastises him for it. But Cress just blows up at her, uh, especially when she says that she'll take up the matter with Shade. But then, as she is leaving, Woe tells Cress to mind his faces. And when he looks, he sees that she's right. The Sand Kings have altered their depictions of his face, and he just hadn't noticed before. Uh, It's a very subtle change, but he looks kind of malicious. Or maybe he doesn't. In the end, he decides this was mere suggestibility, and he puts it out of his mind. But something else that happened at this party is that one of the guests suggested making this uh, type of gathering a, a regular thing, and also make it a bit of a gambling thing. So it really is going to turn into sci-fi dogfighting. And then when the dude who had suggested this in the first place falls heavily in the hole... He brings over a sand spider, which is just to say really a space spider. It's you know from some other planet. It's big. It's scary. Uh, so we get a really detailed battle here. I'm just going to cut to the, the chase of it, though. It's actually some really wonderful uh, action writing. The sand spider goes after the red castle. The red mobiles are so tiny compared to this thing, but they are organized and they put up a really good fight. Still, the sand spider gets into the castle. There are a few tense moments until it becomes clear that the sand spider is not eating the red sand kings here. It's the opposite. The red maw has actually devoured this sand spider. And this, too, might be a little bit of foreshadowing. Maybe. I mean, these things are still pretty (laughs) small. And sure, they can pretty much defeat and eat anything that's a couple times their size. But... You know, as long as you don't give them water after midnight, everything should be fine. <laughs> Man, you know, I can't believe we made it this far in without a gremlins joke. <laughs> well, it's all it's gremlins all the way down here <laughs> from here on out. So prepare yourself. But <laughs> this is definitely not a story about unheeded warning. So we really don't have anything to worry about here. I'm sure things are just going to continue along without much, much more <laughs> incident. Uh, but one thing I love about this scene is the way that Martin goes to these great lengths to point out just how sadistic and self-serving cresses. And this scene with Kath is really the, the cap to it. I mean, we have to wonder why Kath would even attend this party. It's a big question mark for me to begin with. If she's already disgusted with Crest based on their past relationship, we get a character moment with her though, where she tells 
crest that she's hoped that he's changed and that he invited her to this party so that he could apologize. And in romantic relationship terms, I think we can say that she's still kind of hung up on him at this point. She just can't believe how bad things have turned out just based on this bit of dialogue. But still, for Crest to pull this act, uh, it's just exceptionally cruel. It's a cruel thing to do to an ex, especially because Crest really brought her to this party so that she could be laughed at by all of his friends. And I'm going to wait a little bit to talk more about their relationship uh, and the thing that broke them up or drove them apart. It'll be more relevant later. But that event really tells us that Kath should never have responded to Cress's invitation. And, you know, I, I do in our discussion want to talk about whether or not some of these character motivations make sense on their own terms or whether they're really here to serve a plot. And that'll be a fun discussion. Not to say that there's anything wrong with either choice. I'm really looking forward to uh, trying to reconstruct like their meet cute, like trying to figure out how their relationship started in the first place. But I think it's it's pretty solid advice that you're giving here, Brandon, which is right that if you get an invitation from an ex you have not heard from in a long time and, uh, you know, an ex with whom you had a bad breakup, just don't go. Don't even open that, you know, just uh, yeah. just do something else that night. Right. That's what fires are for. You just toss it in the fire. <laughs> I, I also want to linger on this moment with Woe at the end of the uh, of the at the end of the party as well. These Sand Kings do actually seem like really awesome. This story made me want to go and buy an ant colony. You know, like this just seems so <laughs> fascinating to me. And and Woe tells Crest that hey, these creatures are going to get up to the stuff you want, the fighting and the warring, but they're going to do it on their own terms and for their own reasons. They don't need their god to go to them into it by being cruel or starving them. And she goes on to say that there's a lot of nuance and some real elegance in understanding these creatures than there is in getting them to fight for a performance. And, and part of that is something I think we haven't brought up yet, which is this psionic relationship, which is another kind of core element in the story. And what psionic really means here is, is empathy that you can, get to know these creatures, you'll kind of feel what they're going through and you'll understand their motivations. And that's a really interesting and fascinating thing. And so maybe there is a reason why Woe does sell the Sand Kings to Cress. She wants him to learn to have empathy with other creatures. But that's something also we'll talk about in the discussion. But Woe also really doesn't do much to intervene here. So I'm also really concerned about like what's going on with her, even though maybe I gave a way out for Martin here. Anyway, We've also got some picture of Dorian Gray stuff going on here, too, which I just love. You said at the the top, Brandon, that this is nearly a perfect story, and that is true. I don't want to change a single thing about this story, but I do kind of want to read some, I guess not fan fiction, because I would like Martin to write it. But I, I, I want to see like an expanded version of this story with some different point of view characters. And one of them is Woe. I, I want to know what happens when Woe goes to Shade and reports back about what's happening here with these sand kings and what shade's plan is right there's a real sense here that even though cress has purchased the sand kings from woe and shade shade in particular feels some kind of obligation to the creatures and will intervene though it, it never is going to come to that that's not the story that we're going to get here but i'd like to know what that plan was yeah and yeah i'm, I'm with you 100 percent. this is a nearly perfect story and the reason why we can say that is that this story is so good that it's 
minor flaws, which I don't even know if they can be characterized as flaws, only make you think of how it could be exactly perfect. And so like it's that it's that contrast that we're feeling or that tension of like uh where the flaws make you realize that something could be elevated even more. And uh, I also wouldn't change anything about this story. Like literally there's not a thing I would change about it. Yeah. I mean, flaws is definitely not the right word. I think just choices where, you know, readers might have made a slightly different choice if they had been writing the story. Though, of course, uh, well, I can I'll at least speak for us, Brandon, neither of us capable of writing a story this good. No, so. <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> well, Chris does not just sit around in his house watching his sand kinks, uh, though he, he does actually do a lot of that. It's not the only thing that he does. One night, he goes to Asgard for a nice meal at his favorite restaurant, only to find that Kath is there too. He decides to go say hi, except say hi means uh, tell her about the Sand King war games and dogfights and uh, invite her to the next one. She, of course, is furious about this and says that she's going to stop him. About a week later, a police officer shows up asking about some semi-sentient carnivorous insects. Now, of course, Cress can't answer any of her questions about where they come from. He doesn't have a license for them either, and so... This police officer is going to have to confiscate them, except that the police officer is easily bribable here. Uh, The only issue really is that Kath is going to have to be satisfied, right? What if she calls again? But Cress has a plan, so don't worry about that. But we're not actually there yet. So Cress is enjoying a night in with a TV show and a bottle of wine. And when he wanders through the living room where the Sand Kings are, he notices something that upsets him. He's recently thrown a puppy into the tank. Uh, We'll talk about why in just a minute. But at any rate, he's he's recently thrown a puppy into the tank. And while the Sand Kings were victorious, the dog did a lot of damage. And so now, as the Sand Kings are repairing their castles, they are also redoing their portraits of Cress. And Cress does not like what he sees. He looks piggish, leering, malevolent. The Reds have given him a a satanic smile, while the Whites have carved him to resemble a cruel idiot god. Uh, Cress is furious about this, and he goes and gets an antique sword that he has lying around somewhere in his house, I guess, and he moves the tank cover a little bit, and he leans down into the tank, and he smashes up the Whites' castle, and then he jabs the point down into the Maw's chamber until he hears a a soft squishing sound and meets some resistance. And for a moment, all the white mobiles tremble and collapse, but then they get up again. Uh, The Maw apparently is is alive. It's going to survive, perhaps damaged. And at the end of this, Crest notices a, a, a little white mobile crawling up his arm. Now, he brushes it off, but he is super freaked out about this, and he vows never again to open the lid, you know, no matter how angry he gets. And also, he decides to increase the humidity now so that uh, all the Sand King castles are suffering in rain, a climate that they don't like. And uh, all of that is super disturbing, right? This is very cruel. He's tormenting, torturing these creatures, but... uh, We've actually got one more really disturbing episode that we need to relate before we pause. And I'm just wanting to lump them here together so that we only have to deal with them kind of in one go. And look, it's this business with the puppy. And this is going to be gruesome and uh, really disturbing. So the deal is that Kath loves animals. 
She once had a puppy. Being rich, Cress was able to get a pet store dude to find him a puppy that looks exactly like the, the one that Kath used to have. And he tossed it into the Sand King tank where it was brutally killed by the Sand Kings. On top of that, on top of just doing that, Cress had a friend come over and, and film the whole thing so that he could send the video to, to Kath. And well, now she's here and she's very angry about what she saw on this video. Uh, she also has a sledgehammer. And so while she is yelling at Cress for being a monster, she begins to smash up the Sand King tank. But it, it, it holds. It's a really good tank, a really sturdy tank. And Cress tackles her. And they fight. And then he's got the sword again. And now he plunges it through her belly. Kath does not die from this. I mean, not not right away. She is going to die here, but she doesn't die from this right away. And so with what strength she has left, she swings her sledgehammer one more time. And now the tank shatters and Kath is buried beneath an avalanche of plastic and sand and mud. Sand kings begin to emerge from this mess, and for the first time since the installation, Cress sees a maw. What's happening is that there's a, a column of mobiles carrying this maw to safety, and the maw looks now like a, a slimy piece of raw meat the size of a person's head. And this is when Cress just runs for it. Yeah, okay, so there's a lot going on here. <laughs> this is definitely a turning point moment for Cress. Uh, and one of the reasons why this trick with the puppy is played on Kath, and I mean, that's the most euphemistic phrase I think I could use, but uh, why why Cress is acting so cruelly towards Cress, why Cress is acting so cruelly towards Kath and why this works is that Cress's shambler ate Kath's last puppy. And that certainly led to their breakup in their relationship. And so Cress is just revisiting this moment with Kath and forcing her to relive it. And he's getting back at her for sending that stupid police person to his house. And what this all really amounts to is that this whole business with the Sand Kings is just costing him more than he wants to spend. And he blames Kath, so he's going to get revenge on her. And it's insane. But the most disheartening thing, I think, I mean, among the many disturbing things in the story, is that I would feel like this sort of environment, environmental control job, if you were the police person, for instance, whose job it is to make sure there aren't any invasive alien species coming to your planet... That's a pretty serious job that, like, you shouldn't take bribes over that, right? Because you'll just destroy a whole planet with an invasive species. Right. It's the it's the difference between sort of giving a, a, a restaurant a pass for not having the cleanest kitchen, knowing that some people might get some food poisoning and, say, uh, allowing some new disease to enter the ecosystem and right. affect literally every person on the planet, including you, right? Like, it's totally against your own self-interest to take the bribe here instead of to actually do your very serious public service job. Yeah, it's another question of character motivation we're going to look at, I suppose. In a, it's going to be a big category. But anyway, the point is that this is all Cress's fault and that this person actually came to his house because he's exactly the wrong person to be in charge of Sand Kings anyway. <laughs> you know, So like, I'm not quite sure if killing the Sand Kings is morally justifiable. Are they a sentient species? Should they have rights? Like all this stuff. But at this point, it might be a good idea. They're being mistreated. There's no way if they get out, they're going to do any good to the uh, ecosystem that they live in. Uh, 
And uh, I think, man, at this point, if the Sand Kings got out or, you know, I was well when I got a report, I'd have real questions and concerns about whether or not Cress is a good owner of these creatures. But if I were Cress, I'd be calling Woe at this point and being like, hey, so uh, what do you do if Sand Kings actually get out of the tank by accident? <laughs> yeah, it's totally an accident and it never happened. But what do you do? <laughs> that would be that would be what I'd be doing as Cress. Right. You have to say hypothetically, right? You have to say the word hypothetically as many times in a sentence as you possibly can. <laughs> right. And we should also mention here that it's pretty clear that Cress is an alcoholic with almost no moral sense. And those things may not be related. But the point is that he's already got no inhibitions, no moral inhibitions uh, in his character. And then he's also drinking a lot. So the only things that really matter to him are his wealth and his self-preservation. He's not a person that I'd like to know. He even takes advantage of his friend's gambling problems, which we talked about a little bit, but not too much. But I will say that there is a drug in this book, uh, in this world called a joystick. And uh, yeah, that sounds pretty cool, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure what the what the analog is supposed to be, but uh, definitely using that at a time when uh, that would have referred to sort of video game language. I I don't know that we use joystick to mean that anymore, right. but in the late '70s, it certainly did. Yeah, it's a it's a fun it's a fun play on uh, uh, video game, the new drug, you know. I guess. <laughs> anyway, Cress has just murdered his ex girlfriend for trying to break one of his toys, and he feels like he's in trouble. Yeah, which was not the plan, right? The plan was not to murder her. The plan was to to get her to stop calling the police. And I, you know, I think we'll probably take this up more in the discussion. But I have to say that although this succeeds, it was not the best solution, I think. It was not the best way to go about doing that. But uh, yeah, we can take that up later. So yeah, as you say, now, Cress, he's got some problems. He's got two specific problems here. One how to protect himself from being convicted of murder, and two, what to do about the Sand Kings that are loose in his house. So, naturally, he goes shopping. He gets a, a sci-fi bodysuit that will protect him from the Sand Kings. He gets poison pellets and also some pesticide spray. And finally, he gets a maglock for his space car. Now, back home, the first order of business is to get rid of Kath's car. Uh, this is what the maglock is for. He finds the physical copy of the video that he sent her inside, and so that is accounted for as well. But he needs to get her body out of his house, too. So now it's time to go in, and he hasn't been back in since the Sand Kings got loose. And uh, her body's not there. And look, you know what's happened to it. We all know what's happened to it. We all know what's coming. And uh, <laughs> yeah, there aren't any Sand Kings anywhere either. So... Now, Crest tows Kath's car out to uh, a range of active volcanoes about 70 clicks away, and he dumps it in some lava. So, you know, that's one problem solved. But look, the story's not called Kath. The story's called Sand Kings. And so now things are going to go from <laughs> bad to worse in a real big hurry here. Crest reminds himself that the mobiles do not matter. They're controlled by the Maws. And so all he needs to do is kill the Maws, and then his problem will be solved. Now, the Whites have settled in Cress's deepest wine cellar, and uh, turns out that they've got Kath's body down there, and they're trying to feed it to the Maw. The mobiles are trying to feed it to the Maw, but it's, it's hard work. And when they see Cress, they form up in a battle line. They are ready to defend themselves from him. 
And now Kress has a different idea. He's got his sword with him, and he decides, you know, rather than use it on the whites again, he decides to actually help them by hacking up Kath's body into smaller bits so that they can uh, get those bits into their new castle. Eh, what are gods for anyway, right? <laughs> So, okay, Uh, he continues searching and he finds the blacks out in his rock garden where they have built a castle of obsidian and quartz. The reds are at the bottom of his unused swimming pool, which has been half full of sand for a little while now, but he can't find the oranges anywhere. And eventually he gives up looking. He's not like the oranges really from the start anyway. But while he's at this, he's been laying out the poison pellets and he's actually seen reds and blacks picking them up to bring to their maws. Uh, these are, you know, a poison that seems like it's food, I guess. And so he expects that they're both going to be dead by tomorrow. And Cress also has a use for the whites. And once he's done using the whites for whatever it is he's got planned, he'll be able to easily dispose of that maw. So as far as Cress is concerned, things are going great. This is working out way easier than he anticipated. Now, the plan that he has for the whites is this. You'll recall that Crest did not record the brutal death of this puppy himself. He had a a friend who works in film or, I don't know, maybe does it as a hobby or something like that. But he had this friend come over and do the filming. And that means that she's kind of a witness to the whole murdering calf business. So Crest invites her over again and, well, he shoves her down into the cellar so that the white maw will eat her. Uh, And then he takes her car to the volcanoes as well. And so he's in the clear now and he can sleep comfortably in his room. Everything is going to be fine. In the middle of all of this, Cress has totally forgotten that he has a standing party for these like Sand King fights that he's hosting. And he's got to turn everyone away from this party. And he does. But this is where, you know, his quick thinking and sharp business acumen really kick in. He tells Edie, who that's the girl who filmed this puppy murder, uh, that the party is canceled. And instead of her coming over for the party, maybe she'd just like to spend a night with him alone. And yeah, she would like that. I guess she had a really good time filming puppy murder. You know, these yeah. are just wicked people. These are evil people. And still, like, even in another story, we might read her come up into here as a, like a great moment. Like, she's getting her just desserts. Martin has somehow pulled this trick where he's giving us all these really evil people, but their deaths, rather than being a just desserts kind of thing, only serve to remind us how evil rotten how evil and rotten cresses. And uh, it's it's brilliant. It's a brilliant technique. But maybe it's also, you know, one of those minor things we'll talk about in the discussion. But, you know, the real lesson of this story is that uh, if you commit one crime, it's pretty important to commit other crimes in order to cover it up. And that, <laughs> that's the best way out of trouble, especially if you're rich enough to bribe police officers. So, yes, Glenn, as you say, everything is going to be fine. Cress has money and influence and what else could a person really ever need? Yeah, I mean, this guy just thinks that he he owns everything that he wants to own. And uh, if there's more that he'd like to own in the future, he'll be able to buy that too. Just thinks everything and everyone is for sale and the rules don't apply to him. And uh, this story is going to have an appropriate ending for someone like that. <laughs> it sure will. <laughs> All right. Well, the next morning, Cress gets up and he goes out to bury the reds and blacks who, of course, have died from the poison pellets. Except that they haven't. 
They are not dead. In fact, there are more of them than ever. They're bigger. They're carrying lizards into their gigantic castles. And also, they know that Crest tried to kill them with poison pellets. And so, when he goes back inside to get the spray pesticide, they get ready for him. There's a really terrifying fight here. Cress is overwhelmed, but because he's essentially wearing armor, he's able to get away, get back inside the house, but he's not done any damage to the reds and the blacks here. And so inside, he calls up an old associate. This is an assassin he's used before 10 years ago, and her name is Lysandra. And she'll be right over. And she is. She's got three operatives with her. And Cress has filled her in with enough information that they really do seem ready. They've got flamethrowers, explosives, they've even got a laser cannon. There is a lot of throwing of flames here, but the Sand Kings outside swarm and kill two operatives before Lysandra and the third operative are able to deploy the explosives against the castles. But once they do, the, the Maws are dead and the remaining mobiles collapse. So the Reds and Blacks have been dealt with and, hey, it shouldn't be a problem to get one more, right? So now for the cellar. When the Sunder opens the door to the cellar and flicks the light switch, a hand-sized white mobile clamps down on her and breaks through her armor. Now she kills it by smashing it against the wall, but she's bleeding, and the lone remaining operative with her just says that he is not going down there like, for any amount of money. And she agrees. Lysandra agrees with this. They are just going to flame the place. They're not going to go down there. Just throw some flames down there. But Crest does not want them to do that because, you know, like this is his house. He's trying to preserve his home. And so he tells them just to forget it. He'll take care of the last one himself. But Lysandra doesn't care. This is no longer a job for her. She wants revenge, and she is going to get it. Except she isn't, because Crest takes her out. Also, this other operative who's there, too. Because, you know, as long as he's good to the Whites, they really shouldn't be a problem, right? So now that's four people he's fed to them. And we're nearing the end now. Crest really should just get out of here, right? We all know this, but Crest does not. He doesn't know this, and he doesn't do it. Instead, he drinks until he passes out. And when he wakes up, it's still dark out, and now he does want to get out of here. But the Whites have disabled his car. Also, they are now the size of his arm. They're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Back in the house, the mobiles are busy, and Cress empties his freezers and gets out all the food that he can find as a kind of offering for them since now he really just can't get out of here and then he calls up a bunch of his friends and invites them over and yeah they're sand king food now as well now when the last arrives though crest tries to jump in his car so that they can both get out of here like before this guy gets out but the sand kings get to the guest first and at this point crest gives up they're just isn't much time left until they decide to eat their own god and he, he knows it and so he just gets drunk. These scenes with Lysandra work really well, especially when you think of them as a mirror or an echo of the scenes when like some foreign creature was in the tank with the Sand Kings. And we already know that the Sand Kings are highly capable and organized. So we can expect this fight to be exceptional. And it is. This action writing is amazing. And whether it's to your taste or not, it's undeniable that George R. R. Martin knows how to write battle and action scenes. 
And I also just love how he sets up every element of this story and gives it a payoff. It's this kind of mind, this the mind to plotting that really presages book three of A Song of Ice and Fire that's called A Storm of Swords. If you've not read it, if you've only watched the show or haven't, um, I'm sure you've heard of The Red Wedding, and this is the book where that takes place. And it's just an absolute masterpiece of plotting. And you can just see that on display in this story here. Yeah, and honestly, I'd be hard pressed to say which of these things is is more gruesome, right? The Sand Kings or the the Red Wedding, and uh, you know, we do I think culturally think of Martin principally as a fantasy writer because of the you know pop culture success of Game of Thrones, but even the the Red Wedding is a is a really a horror story that is interwoven throughout that book as uh, you know we the readers can see it coming, and, and it, it, there's real horror story elements to that. Yeah, and and the things that Martin sets up that lead to the payoff of the Red Wedding or the surprise of it, uh, and really everything that takes place in book three are things he's setting up in book one. And uh, yeah, I know he hasn't finished the the series yet, but those first three books work beautifully as a, a, a trilogy that just pays dividends at the end of book three. I'm not going to say any more about uh, about Game of Thrones, at least not on this episode, because uh, uh, we've got some vague-ish maybe, but we've got some plans to cover at least the first book on uh, on ATOS, Jay and I, I mean, as part of our medievalism in, in uh, speculative <laughs> fiction series. So I'll, I'll hold my comments until that moment, uh, probably a few months hence. But all right. So we really are at the end of this story now. When Cress wakes up, the Sand Kings are still all over the house, but they're not moving anymore. He touches one and it's hot, like hot to touch. And a bit of its exoskeleton falls away and reveals this really creepy white flesh underneath. Cress still can't really escape because, yeah, his car doesn't work. And so he gets an axe and he just starts hacking up the mobiles. And they kind of explode when he does this. And he's getting half-formed organs and weird blood all over everything. And of course, this is futile. And now Cress finally does what you suggested quite a while ago, Brandon, <laughs> and calls up Woe and Shade, the shop that sold him the Sand Kings. And Woe chastises Cress for being a monster. Cress has turned the Sand Kings into something horrible by starving them and torturing them. The White Maw is probably insane because, you know, it was stabbed by its own god. But... Here's the deal with the mobiles. They are molting. They are undergoing a transformation into a different form. When they're done, they're going to be bipedal. They're going to have four arms and opposable thumbs. But the maw is also transforming now and is becoming more sophisticated and more ambitious. And so the new mobiles will be able to construct and operate advanced machinery. And Cress realizes now that uh, the people who had installed the Sand Kings in his house were in fact themselves advanced Sand Kings. And Woe acknowledges this, right? She admits that Shade is indeed a Sand King. And, and here's what she says. Do not be absurd. A first stage Sand King is more like a sperm than an infant. The wars temper and control them in nature. Only one in a hundred reaches second stage. Only one in a thousand achieves the third and final plateau and becomes like Shade. Adult Sand Kings are not sentimental about the small maws. There are too many of them and their mobiles are pests. So, all right, Cress can't get out of here, at least not very far, because he's in the middle of nowhere without a car. So, Woe and Shade are 
coming to take care of the problem. But they're not going to be able to get there in time, and so Woe tells Crest to just walk due east towards some pretty desolate terrain, and this will let them find him with an aerial search after they have dealt with the insane Sand King in the cellar. And Crest doesn't really have an alternative, so he walks. And it's so hot, and it's so miserable, he wonders if anyone is ever going to find him. What is taking so long, he thinks. And now the sun is going down, and he accepts that he's going to have to spend the night out here. Eh, But at least it's cooling off, so, you know, that's nice. Now he walks up a small hill, and then he actually sees a small house in front of him in the distance, and the shadowy outline of some children playing in the yard. And this is awesome, right? He's not going to have to sleep out here after all. He will be able to get you know, some shelter and possibly a meal here tonight. And he moves quickly and he begins shouting to these children. And the kids come running towards him. But of course, they're not kids. Well, they are kids actually, but they're, they're Sand King kids. You see, Cress forgot that there were four Sand Kings, not three. And now... He's found the Orange Castle. And when the Sand Kings get him and carry him to their castle, he sees that the Sand Kings all have his face. And that's the end. The way that Martin sets up this ending is really brilliant as well. One thing we have to emphasize here again is the psionic connection that the God of the Sand Kings has with its with the Sand Kings themselves. And so Cress really starts to feel that psionic connection with the Sand Kings more deeply, more and more towards the end of the story. He's forced to feel their feelings, really particularly hunger. And hey, it could be the case that some of the madness of the whites may be rubbing off on him as well throughout the end of the story. And that'll be fun to talk about in our discussion. But what Martin does is he shows us how Cress feels the hunger of the Sand Kings and how their satiation also makes him feel satisfied. He does with he does this with the whites. And as Cress gets near to the house in the desert that he finds at the end, he starts to feel hungry, which is totally reasonable given that he's been running wildly through the desert for a while. But what he really feels is the oranges hunger and the orange sand kings have always thought of crest as a kind of dumb a dumb and worthless like idiot god <laughs> so i really expect that they'll have no trouble eating him and i think that's the true end of the story here the whole image at the end is imagining crest as an invader in the sand king's tank and we even get the feeling of that as well and it's just so awesome i mean this is just such an awesome story and we are going to have plenty to discuss in our discussion episode Right. This is a story that I suppose doesn't tell us that Cress is eaten, right? It doesn't actually end with that. It leaves that open-ended and ambiguous, except there's nothing ambiguous about it at all. 100% Cress is eaten. There, there is no happy ending to this story for Cress. Yeah, as there should not be. Absolutely. And uh, we'll talk more about Cress's character in the discussion episode. So that's going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Thank you again so much for taking the time to tell people about our shows. And thank you for reviewing our shows as well. And if you haven't reviewed our shows, we'd love for you to take a few moments more to do that. That also helps us out. 
Yes, we really appreciate everything that our listeners have done to let other people know about our shows, to to bring new listeners into the audience. And as we said at the top, we're also grateful that the winners of the contest have picked such awesome stories for us to do. I'm excited to get into this story again in the discussion episode. So that's what we'll do next time. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.